There's a little bit of a meditation in the sense that you don't have to take notes, no quiz, you don't have to remember stuff. Um, but more you listen to notice whether any of what's spoken resonates with what you know to be true in yourself as a reminder or as a uh, reawakening of your own understanding, your own values. So tonight what I'd like to talk about is a, a talk and a theme that I just did at the end of a retreat that ended, uh, a 10-day retreat that ended a week or so ago here. It was a wonderful retreat. Um, and while it worked for the end of the people sitting for 10 days, I think it might be interesting for you as well. Um, the theme of it is the, the fruits of meditation practice. So even if you are those who are here for the first time or relatively new, some of you, to meditation practice, um, at least it gives you a little um, vision of possibilities. And I think the real question for us is not whether we have meditation skills or cool meditation experiences, although those are useful and important skills and wonderful things to have, but really how do we embody it? How do we live it? Um, to have whatever experiences is one thing, but to live your life as a human being um, with wisdom, with loving kindness, with uh, understanding, with compassion. That to me is really what it's about. And with some sense of connection to something greater than the little consumer that the society would have you be. Consuming is fine too, but you know, it has its place. So how to embody the teachings and the practices? We just did a 35 minutes of mindfulness and loving awareness. When, when I was living, traveling back and forth to, to Thailand back in the 1960s and 70s especially, been back over the years since, there was a difficult revolutionary period in the early 70s. Um, there had been a military dictatorship, and then the students, yay students, came out and tried to protest, and it got worse and worse and got very bloody, um, and there were barricades up in the center of Bangkok on the main road. On one side were the military, and on the other side were the students and their followers and friends with Molotov cocktails and the... Um, it started to spiral out of control and could have led to some bigger kind of civil war in the country. And after one particularly bloody period, um, when everyone was quite worried, the abbot of a forest monastery just outside of Bangkok got all his monks and nuns to get up early in the morning, as you do, um, to go on your alms round, and walked several hours into Bangkok barefoot and then walked between the lines of the soldiers and the students and just stood there for the whole morning meditating very, very peacefully. And in the Thai culture, especially 40 years ago or so, um, there was tremendous reverence for the monastics, for the monks and nuns and seeing their robes and seeing the dignity and the stillness and the peacefulness cooled everybody's hearts. 
And after that morning, instead of there being more volleys of rubber bullets and Molotov cocktails and so forth, things quieted down and the negotiations that were possible began and slowly it de-escalated and um, that was a kind of a turning point. I tell the story not just for its beauty or inspiration or historical significance, but because it's possible for you that we live, you, I, we were incarnated into this amazing human life with joys and sorrows and beauty and conflict. And you too have the possibility to carry yourself with that kind of dignity and graciousness in the midst of whatever circumstances arise for you. Now, one of my favorite accounts also is of the largest peace army the modern world has ever known, which was in the 1930s in what was then called the Northwest Frontier, um, but is now called Afghanistan. It's been Afghanistan forever, but it was part of British, Greater British India at that time. And it was organized by Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who was a very close friend of Gandhi, this wonderful, great, large kind of Afghani chieftain. Um, and he had a hundred thousand men, all very devout Muslims, who vowed to resist British rule and colonization without weapons in their hands or violence in their heart. And they kept their vow despite great provocation and killing and prison sentences and all these things. They were part of what transformed that colonial oppression into um, at least an initial liberation. And I say that also with tremendous joy because we have such a bad characterization of the Muslim world, you know, because of a small number of radical terrorists and a moderate number of fundamentalists. But then again, there's a moderate number of Christian fundamentalists. And if you go to Israel, there's a moderate number of Jewish fundamentalists. There, there are very few Buddhist fundamentalists. There are some, I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't really like them that much, but I try to be tolerant and loving, but anyway, you know. But it just changes the imagination to picture, you know, a hundred thousand Afghani men who have so much dignity and beauty saying, yes, we, if there's that kind of inspiration, we're, we're with you, we'll to the death. So when I see you sit, as you did tonight, so peacefully looking so good, um, there's also something that starts to shine in you. Um, and I see in us, in you collectively, the same possibility of embodying this centeredness and dignity and uh, steadiness. And modern neuroscience research, which there's been these you know, 3,000 papers and studies on mindfulness and other ones on compassion and so forth, um, in all different kinds of ways, um, basically shows that through the trainings of attention, through neuroplasticity where you can change the nervous system in um, relatively short order, within an eight-week meditation program or sometimes with even six or eight hours of practice, there are noticeable changes in brain structure and in epigenetic um, 
turning on and off of particular genes related to well-being, and so you get increased physical resiliency and healing and greater emotional balance and uh, a steadying of attention and enhanced um, cognitive clarity and all these kinds of things in not very long. If just all that it asks is that you uh, do it. <laughs> and when you do, things start to happen. Now, you can't grasp after it, but as you practice, you can start to trust the fruits will grow. A Hasidic rabbi in the Jewish mystical tradition, a great rabbi, taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their heart. One day, a student asked the rabbi why he always used the phrase, on your heart. The master replied, only God can put the teachings in your heart, or the gods. Here we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that someday, when your heart breaks, they will fall in. (laughs) And so you practice, and in a way it prepares you to embody and live this, especially when you get the phone call that's the difficult news, or when the unexpected things fall apart, which they will. You don't think so? Guaranteed at some point. It's part of the game, you know. So you begin to practice so that this capacity and this knowledge of how to live um, becomes embodied in you. Now I have this long note that was given to me by a young woman who was on the retreat recently. She talked about how hard the the initial days were, sitting there quietly, sitting and walking for, you know, eight hours a day or ten hours in silence. And she said, my mind went crazy. I would beg for it to stop and it was relentless. She described it gnawing at her head like a jaw clenched like a pit bull foaming at the mouth. You know, no escape from its planning and plotting and kicks and it closed all the doors and windows and it just was thinking and obsessing and I'd say, thinking, obsessing, and then I was obsessing more and it got dark and worse and doubt and discouragement and then self-hatred tied my hands with his arms crossed and stood like a bouncer guarding the door so I couldn't get out. And I thought, this is the end. Wait a minute. Awareness whispered like a ghost. And just then... Awareness directed by loving-kindness, who has now drilled a hole through the roof where I've been imprisoned by my mind, descends a rope from the ceiling as it drops at my feet. Wait, you are not your mind, and repels down and snatches me out out of the prison of my mind, out into the woods, and I stand out swaying in the wind among the trees, and I hear this voice, just breathe with them and be still. No more questions. Just silence and the wind and the rustling and the bending and the air against my cheek freezing my tears cold. Just this, just now, and the going with and not against. This is how to remain unbroken. So it's kind of like her poem of liberation on a good day, right? (laughs) So what happens when you meditate in the beginning is that you tend to focus on the objects of experience. You focus on the breath, which is helpful because it quiets the mind a little bit. 
you focus on body sensations or sounds or the great waves of emotion or thoughts that come. But as you start to practice a bit more and settle down, the focus can shift from the direct experience alone to the field of experience so that you begin to notice the nature of the procession of experiences and that the sounds and the thoughts and the painful sensations and the joyful moments and the um, emotions and the bodily trembling and so forth, you notice that they come and go like waves, that they're impermanent, they arise and you become the space of loving awareness that receives them. You notice they're impermanent. You also notice that they're pretty unreliable, that your thoughts, whatever you think and whatever opinion you have, there's some other opinion. And not only that, you've often held that other opinion at another point or had another perspective. They're unreliable, they're impermanent, and they're not really in your control. They're selfless in a way. They're patterns, but they're not who you are. And so the shift that begins to happen is presence with experience, but then a spacious open heart, loving awareness that has ease and says, oh yeah, joy, sorrow, praise, blame, the experiences come and go, and you begin to sense the, the river of life that you are a part of and rest in that river. And there comes with it then a greater sense of well-being in the body, even if it's in pain some. Okay, that's pain. Pain is just part of the dance. There comes a greater sense of well-being. Yes, the mind can get contracted or tight or worried and so forth, and you bow. There's worry, there's contraction. But you rest in the space of greater wisdom and ease. As Rumi, the poet, says, when you go into the garden, do you look at roses or thorns? Spend more time with jasmine, you know? So you shift from being worried about the content of experience, and it has its importance. There are certain things that come that you need to feel or tend to. Nowhere near as much as you obsess about, but once in a while, you know those ones that are important. But instead, you begin to sense the well-being that can come through loving awareness itself, holding all of this. And so you sit in your meditation, or you cook your food at home with some loving awareness, or with a, you know, you're there with people you love. And as your practice grows, as your attention grows, mindfulness, loving awareness, interest grows, but also calm and some ability to have equanimity and balance grow. And you start to feel these are what I'm naming or what the Buddhist psychology calls the factors of enlightenment. They, you can actually sense, oh yeah, they're, they're growing in me, a little more equanimity, a bit more calm, more presence and mindfulness and more interest. And when you do notice them, you know what to do? Enjoy them. Don't worry about being attached to them. That comes later. Enjoy them really seriously. Expand them, dwell in them, inhabit them, marinate in them. Go, oh yeah, this is calm. Cool. I like this. This is equanimity. This is well-being. This is loving awareness. 
and begin to trust that you can abide, that that becomes your home, which it is. And the other qualities of the awakened heart that we talk about so often, loving kindness, compassion, joy, they all arise with this in their own sweet way. And, you know, if you look at all the descriptions of enlightenment, which isn't a word I tend to favor as much as the other translation of awakening. I love the word awakening to the way things are. Um, the awakened consciousness or enlightened consciousness um, is consciousness that's transparent, loving, pure, timeless, open, that is your true nature, it is your consciousness. And you get lost in your small dramas and then you return back to this liberated awareness and it has beautiful qualities. It has the qualities of love, of silence, of vast peace, of emptiness, of fullness, of a kind of presence, of a sense of perfection, that you're not at struggle with anything in the world, a sense of trust, a radiance to it. And depending on who the teacher and the tradition that you encounter, they often focus on one or the other. Love is really what enlightenment is about, or, you know, emptiness. Go to a good Zen teacher and it's sort of all about emptiness, you know, or peace and so forth. But they're really like turning the crystal of this, this beautiful jewel or crystal of consciousness. And depending how you look at the crystal in which facet, in the same way you look into the awakened heart and mind, and it is love, and it's also perfection, and it's joy, and it's peace. It has all these multiple dimensions, and so you get flavors of these as they come. Now, these understandings grow out of the also out of the observation of the way things are. Um, one of the translations for the word dharma, which means truth or teachings or path, it has a lot of different meanings, is also the way things are. And so you start to notice, if you rest in loving awareness, that the experiences of human life in this human incarnation you find yourself in are indeed impermanent. So you say, well, what's news about that, right? We all know that. But there's something that starts to happen when you sit back a little bit instead of trying to react, liking the pleasant and disliking the unpleasant and trying to scheme and manipulate and control and direct and create and so forth. All those things are good. But when you take the time to step back and say, wow, what is this like? And you see praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and light and dark and sweet and sour and birth and death and fame and disrepute. And you realize that what you are is a series of waves. The Buddha described the human incarnation as five rivers, rivers of sense impressions, Rivers of feelings. Have you noticed that river of feelings? It keeps changing too. One mood, one feeling, and then another comes along. And they seem very real. And then the next one comes, washes over you. River of 
perceptions and opinions. Oh my, turn on the news, right? And then the river of thoughts. Here you just sat for half an hour. You saw it, baby, you know. <laughs> the mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just, it's part of what it does, and it's this river. And then the river of consciousness that knows it all. What you are is a river. So then there are two choices. You can try to dam it and hold on to it. It silts up. You know, it's very hard to hold running water. Or you can relax. There are, as Somerset Maugham said, three rules for writing, writing the great English novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> right? This is more or less the way human incarnation works. The poem I love to read from Mary Oliver, where she writes, Where are you, Mary? Ah, yes. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. Beautiful part of spiritual practice, half of it maybe. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said, and vanished into the world. And there's this beautiful balance that you tend and care for things, but you don't own them. You don't own your children. You don't own your body. Heavens, try your possessions. Like the rich guy who died, you know, and everybody's talking about how rich he was. And, you know, somebody said, well, how much did he leave? Or the person said, everything. I mean, what, you know, that's what you leave. <laughs> so when you start to see impermanence in this way from loving awareness, you realize that you can't hold on. It doesn't work. And so you become gracious and spacious and things troop out of emptiness and appear and do their dance and so forth. And you somehow be able, become able to rest in the, find your composure in the changing world. Um, and it brings wisdom and an ease to the heart. As the saying goes, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And so that's your becomes your meditation practice. And then you start to see, not only is everything changing, and so if you want to live a human life that has some wisdom in it, you have to be able to allow change and, and go with it, even though some of it's painful and some of it's exquisite. You, that's the game. You also start to see dukkha, which means that things are unstable, unreliable, subject to loss, or as one of the teachers on this retreat, Nikki, called it, she said, sometimes it's life is just a bummer, <laughs> you know, small things, you lost your parking place or you got into a little accident and sometimes terrible things. Um, and you start to accept, okay, this is human life. You didn't do something wrong. It's not a mistake that you have pain or that you age or that people die or that there's conflict um, or suffering. Um, it's not your fault. Um, it's the first noble truth of the Buddha that says that human existence 
is woven together between joy and sorrow and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. And um, that's how it is on this planet. And if you want to live with a compassionate and open heart, you actually have to accept life on its honorable, in an honorable way on its own terms. And it doesn't mean you can't stand up for justice and fight for what things are needed and prevent suffering and so forth. But, you know, it's not your job to change the incarnation of the world. This is human existence. But what happens as you allow yourself to open to the magnitude of the pain of the world? Well, this is from Pirbalayat Khan. He says, overcome any bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain of the world. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, you are each a part of her heart, and therefore each endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet that pain in compassion instead of self-pity. And so what happens if you really let yourself open to change, things not being all in your control? Anybody not notice that? Raise your hand, you can have your $8 back, right? And you open yourself to the fact that there is loss and instability and suffering as well as magnificence and unbearable beauty is that your heart gets tender and compassion starts to arise and it's completely innate in you so you don't have to be too proud about it as I have read on some other nights um, uh, in Balbartal and Jean Desity at the University of Chicago um, did some experiments with uh, rats. I see this nice picture in the newspaper of this two rats. One is in a big kind of plastic cage with a nice little nest and you know a water fountain and some food and things and not bad for a laboratory rat anyway. And then over in the corner is this tiny little tight cage that's terribly uncomfortable and a bit painful into which they stick another rat that squeaks, ooh, ooh, let me out, right? And then there's a lever that the rat in the free cage can push when he learns to that lets the other rat out into the cage. So after a while, the rat learns to push the lever by poking around. Um, and then when other rats are put in that little thing, the rat will go over and let them out. But that's not the cool part. The best part is that now the next step is they give the free-range rat, <laughs> named Rufus or whatever his name is, the free-range rat, they give him five chocolate chips. Now, I don't know, if I were a rat, I love chocolate, so okay, I'm, I'm down with the chocolate chips, but Rufus the rat only eats three or four of them and then pushes a little bar and lets his buddy out or his girlfriend or whoever she is in the, stuck in there and saves a chocolate chip for the other rat. How do you like that? So you can be proud, but you know, it's mammal mammalian proudness, right? Mammal proud, whatever. <laughs> but it's there in you. This is a poem someone left on the bulletin board at the retreat. Meditation hall at night. I'm serenaded by a chorus 
of creek frogs and my neighbor's weeping. Her tears mysteriously stream down my face. And this beautiful thing happens. It happens on Monday night once in a while, but even more on retreat. Somebody will start weeping, and everyone around them goes, ah. It's like it touches the heart. And these aren't the tears of self-pity. Self-pity is okay, but, you know, it gets old after a while. These are called, and they have a name for them, they're called the tears of the way. The the tears of the poignancy of life um, and the fact that um, things are so tentative and impermanent. And I'm looking at the eyes of all the people here and realizing that, you know, we're here for this dance and um, for a certain period of time, and then we'll be gone. You know, in half a century, almost everybody in this room, with a few exceptions, younger (laughs) ones, um, are not going to be here anymore. That's wild, you know. It's really crazy. Because it feels so real, doesn't it? Hmm? And you feel so real. That's part of what makes life so mysterious, that it's tentative like this, and you can feel it. And so there comes this tenderness of heart that, you know, sees how precious it is, how short it is. And then when you see the suffering, whether it's the rats or the tears on the person next to you, or the great sufferings of the world or the losses around you, instead of saying, oh, this is a mistake, I've done something wrong, and you say, oh, there, there, this is um, the tears of the way, this is how it is. And you tend and you do what you can, but you're wise with it, and you're not so afraid, which helps. Impermanent, unstable, dukkha. And then, as you practice, you see how selfless things are. That is, the things that you take to be self, the small sense of self, the identity you have. I mean, your body, it was this little tiny body for a while, then it was a medium, then it got bigger, right? Then it got wrinkled and drooped and, you know, lost its fur and stuff like that. I mean, it goes through all these changes, doesn't it? You know, it's not the same body. And everybody knows the chemistry every seven years, all the molecules are changed and so forth. And then your mind, my gosh, you don't have the same mind you had when you were a kid. For better and for worse, it changes. Your mind changes all the time, and you start to see that the self is not something fixed, but that you are life unfolding through you. And so, your personal identity, which you need to honor, you need to honor your Buddha nature, the kind of universal life that you represent, and you need to honor your zip code and social security number and all that stuff too. Um, But your personal life somehow gets put in a bigger perspective. You don't don't take it so personally. So it's the story I always tell, one of my favorites from Ram Dass, when Ram Dass was early on teaching um, as Baba Ram Dass with the beads and the beard and the white robe and stuff coming back from India, Be Here Now, bestseller. And somebody said, Ram Dass, you know, here you're teaching this Hindu stuff, aren't you born Jewish? What about your Jewish heritage? 
And he said, yeah, I was. And there's beautiful things in the Buddhist tradition. I was bar mitzvah, he said, as I was. You know, and there's the Hasidic mystical tradition and the Kabbalah and all these great teachings. He said, so I really love and respect that. He said, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> and it was kind of funny and witty, but also profound, because who you are is not limited to your parents or your personal history. You were born into this incarnation in this life as a spirit, you know, as consciousness, and you get the body for a certain time. And um, it's not really who you are. Who you are is, ah, there's the question, isn't it? Who are you? Uh Uh The Diamond Sutra says, Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star, a dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a bubble, floating on the river, a phantom, and a dream. So the other night I went to the 35th anniversary of the Seva Foundation, which most of you know, started by Wavy Gravy and Ramdas and Larry Brilliant and Mirabai Bush and other friends, that is now was celebrating that they have restored sight to 3.5 million blind people in Nepal and India and other countries around the world. And they feel like they're just beginning. They want to do a million of them in Burma. They're doing more in Africa. You know, they'd say, oh yeah, there's, there's 30 million completely blind and, you know, 250 million partially blind people in the world. We want to reach them all. You know, quite fantastic. So Wavy was up telling Wavy Gravy stories as he does as the clown. And he said, yeah, back in the 70s when we were traveling in um, India and he said I was doing my clown thing and I would go into children's hospitals and various places like that. So we decided to go to this remote part of Nepal, Mustang, which is on the border just on the edge of Tibet, this old kingdom. He said, and I brought my bubbles with me. You know, and there's, then he just blew these bubbles all out across the room, right? He said, so I come to this monastery, the edge of Tibet in the Himalayas, and there are all these monks inside, <laughs> chanting as the Tibetan monks do. He said, and there's this little lama in robes who was like some high Rinpoche, but just recently recognized, like seven years old or eight, or running around outside. So I'm blowing bubbles, and he thinks that's like the best thing he's ever seen, and he gets the low bubbles and then we go in and we sit down and I talk to the master and I blow some bubbles and we have this conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I turn to the young, the little llama, the kid, and I give him the bubbles. I think this is really great. The master snatches the bubbles from the kid's hand, <laughs> blows some himself, then puts them up on the altar and says, once a year now, on the special day of the Buddha's birth, we will blow bubbles for Buddha. <laughs> so somewhere in Tibet, this is happening. Kalu Rinpoche, great lama, says, you live in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not notice it. You don't know it. When you understand, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. 
when you understand, you'll see that you are nothing, which is to say that the sense of yourself being separate from life and the world is an artificial sense. Your minerals are made from the earth, your thoughts are conditioned by MSNBC and Fox, you know, your, um, sorry, your, uh, <laughs> you know, your feelings are something between your parents and um, Doonesbury and, you know, uh, and, um, I don't know, Mozart and Lady Gaga and all those kind of beautiful poetry and, and um, rap music. And, and you're embedded in, a, you have what my friend Dan Siegel, one of the originators of interpersonal neurobiology, he said, you don't have a separate brain in here. You have a distributed nervous system throughout your body that's resonating with all the beings and people and fields around you. And we can measure that in all kinds of responsive ways. Just like you put a violin in, on a table and pick up another violin and play it, and the strings in the second violin resonate, the one that's sitting there, we're resonating all the time with each other's nervous systems and with the news and the nervous system of the planet and the animals and the changes of weather. And the sense that you're separate, it's useful when you drive, you know? <laughs> So you need it. But if you think that it's most deeply true, then you're lost. Alice Walker, one day I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was. And it came to me that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and run all around the house. When it happens, you just can't miss it. And you all know this. You've all had your moments in walking in the mountains and making love and sitting at the side of a person, a woman giving birth or, or giving birth yourself or sitting at the side of that mystery when someone dies or listening to a magnificent piece of music and losing yourself in it. And you know that that sense of separation is just part of the game. And so who you are, who you are is spirit. It's not the body, it's not the thoughts and the opinions and the emotions. They're, you know, they're part of incarnation. They're an amazing dance that you get to do and make something beautiful with it. So Gary Snyder, I did a reading at D the new diesel bookstore, which has just opened in Larkspur Landing. I'm very happy to have another independent bookstore in Marin, and it's beautiful. So Gary did a reading, and um, I did a bit of a reading right before him as part of it, opening. Um, and Gary was asked, uh, he was actually asked by one of the teachers here, Wes Nisker, a good friend, how he how he viewed the world right now in the environmental disasters that we are facing. And Gary, as one of the premier fathers of modern environmental movement for 50 years or longer, 60 years, Earth household, Pulitzer Prize winning environmentalist and so forth, now the loss of species, the climate change, the rising ocean, global warming, all these things. And his response, which I've said in previous evenings here, his response was, don't feel guilty. 
quite serious, don't feel guilty, he said. Um, if you want to serve the world or save the world, it won't be saved out of guilt. And it won't be saved out of your fighting and your aggression. If you want to serve it or save it, save it because you love it. Because it is you. It's your people, it's your species, it's your biosphere, it's your life. And so what happens is that when there's less sense of separate self, there comes this beautiful and natural loving kindness that it's us, it's, it's our family. As Mother Teresa says, the trouble with you is you draw your family circle too small. And your family needs to include the rhinoceros and the ostrich and the polar bear. They're your people, you know. A story read before, but I love reading it from Barbara Kingsolver. She writes the true story about how in the far north of Iran, in the mountains, where the Lor, um, in Loristan, where the Lori people live, and they are in part um, nomads who take their flocks up into the mountains in the summer had gone up in the mountains, um, was the very end of summer, beginning of fall, and they were getting ready to come back. And the kids were out playing, and the little kids they put in charge of the teenagers. So there was a girl of 12 or 13 who had eight of the little two, three-year-olds out with her. And she came running back to the village, shouting, shouting, saying, he's gone, he's gone. And she said, I turned my back for a second, you know, tending all these other kids. And then little, whatever his name is, this little boy, 16 months old, you know, disappeared. And so they all start running and they look behind the rocks and the trees and they can't find him and they get worried, come back into the village, into the yurts or the tents or whatever they lived and they look under everything and where he likes to hide, cannot find him and it starts to get dark and they get worried and they get torches and they can't. The next day they look all over, but as they start in the morning, a person who'd been out in the mountains mentions the word bear. And they go, no, no, not a bear. And they keep looking, nothing the next day. And finally they say, well, we have to look further. He's so little, but we've got to. So the men take their torches, flashlights, and they go up through the woods a couple miles to where it gets rocky and there are these caves underneath this great canopy of trees. And they go from cave to cave and in the mouth of the sixth cave, they hear a voice, a cry. It's a child. They look in the darkness and ominously they smell bear. But the boy is in there crying alive. They move to look in the half light of the cave and see the animal, the round, dark shape of thick furred, quiescent she-bear curled around this boy protecting him. So then, what to do? They take their torches, they grab anything they can to make noise, they shout, they make noise, they do everything they can to scare the bear out of the cave, and they go and they grab the child and run. And praise Allah. She said, 
I read back in the news sources as far as I can go, the translations from Arabic and Farsi. This is not a mistake or a hoax. It happened. The baby was found with the bear in her den. He was alive, unscarred, perfectly well after three days, and well-fed, smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. Now what does it mean? How is it possible that a huge hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than tear him into food? But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she must have had her young of her own somewhere probably died. And so now she was driven by the pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. Now you could read this story and declare impossible, even though many witnesses have sworn it was true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places and think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love. The fact of the DNA code that we share in great majority with all mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk. Small wonder. So something happens as we let ourselves settle back into loving awareness and look at the mystery of this human life and see its ephemeral, ever-changing nature and relax with impermanence and uncertainty. Because it is impermanent and uncertain, so you might as well relax. Uptight doesn't actually change things, right? And soften the heart to the suffering, to the measure of tears that you will get, along with the measure of beauty. So there's a kind of magnificence to your presence. And less taking of it personally, more the loving kindness that says it's us, it's our family, like the bear. And you slow down and you include yourself in the compassion as well as all the others. And as you do, there comes a kind of sweetness to the heart or joy. The Buddha was called the happy one. So the point isn't, you know, to make meditation a grim duty. Okay, I've gone to therapy. I'm on a diet. You know, I did my Pilates, right? Okay, now I've got to meditate. Let's see. It's not a grim duty. It's an invitation to mystery, to love, to return to that freedom that when Aung San Suu Kyi walked out of 17 years of house arrest and could say they never really had me in, under arrest or in prison because I never hated them. My spirit was free. To know that your spirit is free. The Dalai Lama, you know, wrote that great bestseller on happiness, one of his, you know, 60 books, but it was the New York Times bestseller, The Art of Happiness. And somebody asked him about, you know, why he could teach about happiness when there was so much suffering in his native land of Tibet. And the 
he said, yes, they have, the communist Chinese army has destroyed many of our temples. They have taken our sacred texts. They have um, taken and imprisoned monks and nuns. They've taken so much from us. Why should I let them also take my happiness? My beloved friend and teacher, Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, who was a good buddy of the Dalai Lama, um, you know, led these peace walks through the war zones of Cambodia for a long time, just singing the songs of loving kindness, even though most of his family had been killed in the genocide. He said, you know, as he was wearing these bright, those super bright orange robes, my daughter called him Butterball, and, you know, because he looked like this big brown orange robe, and then this smile that beamed that, uh, like some friends said, this is about the only person they'd ever seen who upstaged the Dalai Lama when they were together. This just glowing. And there was a kind of happiness that radiated. He said, what good is this life if you cannot also choose to be happy? What good is your spiritual practice if you can't choose to be happy? Poem from Alison Luderman in Oakland. Consider the generosity of the one-year-old who has no words to exchange with you yet and instead offers up her favorite drooled-on blanket, her green dinosaur as big as she is, her cloth doll with the long pigtails, her battered, soggy books. If you are outdoors, she would hand you a dead beetle a fistful of grass, a pebble, by way of introduction or just because. And if a moment later, mm, mm, she wanted it back, it would be for the joy of the game, the exchange that makes every simple object an offering. In the same way, sun drapes a buttered scarf across your cheek. Rose opens herself to your glance and rain shares its divine melancholy. The whole world keeps whispering or shouting to you, nibbling your ear like a neglected lover. So as you become more present and trusting of the space of loving awareness itself, and relaxed with change that's inevitable, you find your composure in it as you become compassionate and tolerant of the measure of tears, as well as the beauty of the world, there comes a kind of unbidden joy because life shows itself as precious, as mysterious, as unrepeatable. No moment can be, no day can be repeated. Guillaume Apollinaire writes, now and then it is good to pause in your pursuit of happiness and just be happy. <laughs> and so this joy arises and then what to do with it? Compassion, understanding, loving kindness. You use it to set the compass of your heart in the quiet of completing a time of meditation before you get up, resting in awareness, noticing, well, I was lost half that time, wasn't I? And you just bow, okay. That's the thinking mind, thank you. 
you know, and that I was judging. Thank you for your judgments. I appreciate that. But you're the loving awareness. And then before you get up, you look inside and you set your intention from the place of graciousness, of ease, of wisdom that you found, even in moments between a breath, even in moments where you've been lost and upset and angry and frightened, and then there's that moment, say, wow, so lost, wasn't I so angry or frightened? That's the moment of remembering, oh yeah, the spacious loving awareness says, oh yeah, lost in that one, weren't we? You'll see that's the same voice at the end of your life. You're dying there, dying, yeah, it's going to happen. And um, you'll probably say something like, wow, that was a trip, wasn't it? That lifetime. Look at that. What, that was a, what an incarnation that one was, right? That's that voice. You know that one. And so you get quiet a little bit, a little bit present. And then you listen to your heart. What matters? How do I want to navigate this unfolding incarnation? How do I want to live? Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning with a bodhisattva prayer. May I be a raft, a boat, a bridge for all who need to cross the flood. May I be food for the hungry, a resting place for the weary. May I be medicine for all those who are sick. May I be the lamp of illumination for those in darkness. May I be a source of inspiration and courage for those who've lost their way. And may I do so as long as earth and sky and stars and galaxies exist until all beings are enlightened and liberated together. Some little prayer like that, right? Some little vow. Now, you don't have to make it so grandiose if you want. You could just say to yourself, I vow to or I set my intention to be kind. Almost simpler than compassion is a long word, a bunch of syllables. Kindness, even little kids know, you know. Or to be present, to offer my respect to myself and this earth and all that I meet to live with an awakened heart. So it can be in big ways, of course. You can work for justice and help in the ways that the society and the world needs, you know, to help with the climate problems that we face that are so great, or the insane racist poverty prisons, or the kind of consumerism gone mad, or the dreamers, the kids who are brought here at two years old and, you know, need to be able to live their lives. You you can find there's plenty for you to do. Um, I like this. Let me see if I can find it.
Psychologist Len Bergantino writes about a series of frustrating therapy sessions with a patient who was either disconnected and detached over many months or else excessively aiming to please and try and figure out what he wanted. So the, Len, the psychologist, said, the feeling I had on this particular day was it was useless. I just didn't want to say one more word to him about anything. So to his surprise, I took out my mandolin, and in the most loving, mellow, beautiful way I could, I played, come back to Sorrento. <laughs> he broke down in tears and cried for the last 40 minutes of the session, saying only, Bergantino, you sure earned your money today. <laughs> I replied, and to think I wasted all those years talking to people. <laughs> There's something about setting the compass of your heart in this really simple way. May I meet each being with respect. You know, may I tend this precious earth. May I live with kindness and may I have courage. Courage to face what's beautiful and difficult with a free heart. Whatever little prayer you want to make for yourself. And then from that you get up and you wander the dusty roads of the world as the Buddha did for 45 years. And when you touch this in yourself and you renew it through meditation, you bring your blessings to what you touch. And, and people feel it. And animals feel it too. The trees probably feel it as well. Bertolt Brecht. We are traveling with tremendous speed toward a star in the Milky Way. A great repose is visible on the face of the earth. My heart's a little fast, otherwise everything's fine. And it's like this great vision like the astronauts had of that blue-green precious globe that we all inhabit. And we, you know, we do some pretty wacky things like solve our conflicts by building billions of dollars of killing machines to kill each other. That seems kind of like, I don't know, medieval, you know what I mean? Like Stone Age maybe. Maybe they were better in the Stone Age, it's hard to tell. But I think that you know better, we know better, and that that's in us. And it's now time the Earth is really demanding of humanity that we live um, that all the magnificent outer developments of technology and computers and all the wild, fantastic new things that are happening outwardly get married to an inner, an, an, an inner development of the heart and mind so that we live with a, the consciousness that matches the magnificence of our outer capacities. And you're a part of this. You're a part of the world awakening. So you practice for yourself, but you really practice for us all. Let's sit for a moment.
So I'd like to end with a very simple one-syllable chant before we go out into the night. Um, and also to say that um, I thank you for your generosity and this set of seven trailers that were put together 20-some years ago, which is now also the home for many other rodents and various creatures and things that live in it. The county keeps saying you have to replace these or get rid of them and then they give us another five years. Anyway, we're about to build a really beautiful new community hall next year thanks to the support of many of you and others who can help. We still have to raise a bit more money. Um, so it's beautiful to share this space and then it will be fun to have a new one. And I think we'll sell the carpet in pieces. You know, the Dalai Lama sat there, Thich Nhat Hanh was there, you know, like that. And we'll put it on eBay or something. Anyway, all right. So the chant. Um, in Sanskrit, uh, this one syllable, this seed syllable, is considered the first sound in life and the last sound. But most importantly, um, because it's a, the sound of wisdom, it's the seed syllable that represents letting go or opening, the seed syllable ah. So I just want us to sing ah for a bit. Um, and as you do, feel what wants to be let go of so that you're open to leave with a beginner's mind and, a, and an open heart. Ah, keep it going, ah, and add harmony, ah, 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 Blessings from here through the days and week ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.